Well, today's sermon text requires us to have the hard hat and the tool belt and the excavators and big power equipment and cement mixers and beeping backup trucks and work crews and all that sort of stuff. I, I would really think that uh, each of us would benefit if we could envision that kind of scene because it's certainly a construction site. And I almost asked some of the guys in our uh, membership who who work in that industry if I could have worn their hard hats and vests and tool belts and, and all that. But I trust you can picture in your mind that kind of sight. And I invite you with that image in mind to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And we'll pick up the reading in verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 10. There are five parts to this passage. The first part is the foundation. The second part is the worker, the crew, and the materials they're using. The third part is the structure itself that's being erected on top of the foundation. The fourth part takes us back to the architect, the one who drew the blueprint. And the fifth part is the owner and his portfolio. Beginning in verse 10. I'm reading from the New American Standard Translation, Hear the Word of the Living God. According to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it, but each man must be careful how he builds on it. For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Christ. Now, if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Verse 16. Do you not know that you are a temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and that is what you are. Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish, so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. Verse 21, so then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you. 
And you belong to Christ. And Christ belongs to God. The Word of the Lord. Join me again at the throne of grace as we ask for God's blessing as we consider this glorious passage. Father, we come to You, the real God, not figment of our imagination or who we suppose You might have been, but who You reveal Yourself to be in Your Word. To God, the blessed and only Sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. The God whom no man has seen or can see, to whom belongs dominion and glory for endless ages. We come to You, God invisible, immortal, the only wise. The One who inhabits eternity, who dwells in the high and holy place and also with the lowly and contrite. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God who is Himself our very great reward. We come to You and ask that You would reveal Yourself by the person and power of Your Spirit in the face of Your glorious Son. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Although this passage was written 2,000 years ago because of its radical relevance to our day, it feels like all the passages we've been licking our finger and turning to lately, it feels to me like it was written this morning. As I see it, there's one main theme in the passage, and there are five parts to it which each speak in their own way to that one main theme. The overall theme of the text is definite article, the foundation. His name is Jesus. He is the Messiah. Christ Jesus, the foundation of the church. If you're not interested in Jesus, I hope that you are so terribly bored for the next few minutes. I hope that this is a miserable place for you. And I don't say that facetiously or because I'm lacking interest in your well-being, but because if you're not interested in Jesus, you ought not be interested in any real church, true church. Because as sermon two from a couple, a sermon from two weeks ago emphasized from chapter two, we determine, like it's a resolute, on-purpose, unapologetic decision Chapter 2, verse 2, we determine. It's not accidental. It's absolutely purposeful. We determine to know nothing among you except a person, Jesus Christ, and His glorious gospel labors, Him crucified. The person, Christ Jesus, and His saving gospel labors, Him crucified, 1 Corinthians 2, 2, are the exclusive content of our message. Beneath that approach to ministry in the church, Jesus Christ is the only foundation. He is the only foundation for the church for a reason. That's because He is the only adequate substructure on which everything God will ever accept must be built. So if you just skim the passage, verses 10 and 11 are about that foundation, Christ Jesus. Verses 12 to 15 are about the people who are working on the project, the builders, and it also shows us the materials they use wood, hay, stubble, gold, rubies, precious stones. 
Verses 16 and 17 talk to us not about the foundation, but the structure that's erected on top of it, the temple. Verses 18 to 20 take us into the back room, and we get to see in the main office the blueprint. But really, we see the architect, the designer. And then finally, in verses 21 to 23, we see the owner of the whole property, and we see the portfolio of all that he owns. Well, first, verses 10 and 11 is about the foundation. Do not overlook the opening line of verse 10. It is the fuel, the gasoline in the tank, for the remainder of the content that Paul provides for us in this passage and indeed all of his writing and ministry. What Paul is saying is emphatically he's not a self-made minister. Verse 10, according to the grace of God which was given to me, like a wise master builder I laid a foundation. In the next verse, Paul makes very clear that that foundation, verse 11, is Jesus Christ. But I do want to draw your attention just for a moment to that opening line of verse 10. Why did Paul pour a certain kind of cement for the slab of the church at Corinth? Why did he, in a place that prized rhetoric and eloquence and public speech, have their big amphitheaters where people would come and perform their oratory brilliance? Why did Paul go to a city like that and say, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom? I wasn't with you with all this pomp and show and perception of power. Rather, I was with you in weakness, fear, much trembling. Why would Paul go into a place that prized so much oratory eloquence and say to them, I'm not here to impress you with me. I'm here to impress you with him. Was it because he was just more naturally bent that way? Was he just good at gospel preaching? Was it because he went to a better school? Did Gamaliel get a few things right in Paul's upbringing? Is it because he had had plenty of experience and had cut his teeth in places like Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Pisidian, Antioch, and so forth? Was it because he learned the tricks of the trade? Was he just a refined church planter? and therefore more successful than the others? Was it owing to his entrepreneurial skill set? Was he a good self-starter? Was he a motivated worker? No. Why would he call himself a wise master builder? Pack down into the little phrase at the beginning of verse 10 is the answer. It says a lot of things in a little space. God gave me grace. He was mastered by the master carpenter. Jesus of Nazareth, who spent the first 30 years of his life in a tool shed with his dad building furniture, had chiseled away on the apostle and had shaped him into a Christ-like man who was fascinated by the Lord of glory. And I'll say again what Leonard Ravenhill said, and we recite so many times, if I could crack the door of heaven one inch and let you look inside, you would never turn around. Jesus had made himself known to Paul. And you cannot unsee his glory. And the grace that comes to every Christian through Christ had come to Paul. Now how foolish would it be For me to say, oh, I know you all, 
are starving and malnourished and you hadn't had a decent caloric intake in the last week, you've had virtually no food, you're emaciated and you're starting to atrophy, your muscles are eating themselves, and there's no fat left to burn, how foolish would it be for me to have a glorious buffet behind me and just to offer you a little nibble of some kind of junk food? You can't do that once you've tasted of the banquet of Christ. And that's what Paul's saying. God gave me grace. I have no other option than to lay before you a pure, solid gold foundation. He was mastered by the master carpenter. That's what I want to emphasize. According to the grace of God which was given to me. You want to know what makes a faithful gospel minister, or for that matter, a faithful Christian? It's not so much, the old guys say, it's not so much great talent God blesses as it is great likeness to Christ. It's not talent. God's kingdom runs on regular. If you hadn't looked around this morning, there's a bunch of nobodies in this room. We're not gifted in the propagation of the Gospel. We're not good at leading people to true conversion. We don't even have great plans for establishing people and gathering them up into local churches. But there is somebody who is excellent. And His name is God. According to the grace of God that was given to me. Now with that emphasis laid, let's just dig into this first point, the foundation. By the grace of God, what did Paul do? Verse 10, he says, I laid a foundation. We know that the slab sets the trajectory for the square footage and the stability of the structure. The church was built on a rock. Paul poured a slab. The concrete was cured. He took pains to make sure that the base of the church would be capable of supporting its enormous structure and bearing the load for its enduring success. Now others would come along beside the apostle and build on this foundation. He's not the only worker. He's just one among many in the Lord's vineyard. And as was already the case in Corinth, verse 10, Paul says other people are coming along to build. But the foundation's already there. I presume from the remainder of this letter that Paul's thinking of people like Stephanus in chapter 1, verse 16, who perhaps may have been their pastor. No doubt Gaius had a significant role to play in the church and perhaps hosted them in his home. Aquila and Priscilla were disciple makers. Apollos had come along. Peter presumably uh, had his message reach the city of Corinth. Whether he himself came or not, we don't know. But he, this is what's clear. As much as others may build on this foundation, Paul says in verse 11, do you see it? No man can lay another one than the one which is laid, and not leaving us to conjecture or wonder, that foundation is, verse 11, Christ Jesus. That's the reason that the title of today's sermon is Jesus Christ, the foundation. This phrase, no man can lay another foundation than the one which is laid, Christ Jesus. This phrase is a succinct way, a brief way, a small way of saying again what Paul's been saying from chapter 1. 
the glorious person and the gospel labors of the Son of God. That's what I poured into you. I gave you nothing else. I'm interested in nothing else. He alone is the church's rock-solid, substantial ground. Paul's foundation was Christ. How could he give anybody else another foundation than Christ? In light of these verses, I believe the Spirit of God does want us to unashamedly say and to rhetorically, I, I invite you to ask yourself, if you don't want Jesus, should you be attracted to His church? Now, I know there's plenty of churches that will attract us with all sorts of things. But what do you want that you did not previously want prior to being regenerated? What do you love that you didn't used to love? What new loves do you have? What new affections do you have that carnal people don't have? Carnal parents want good stuff for their kids and pretty carpet in their buildings. Is that what attracts you? Is it the sound of the music? Or the hue of the pigment in the skin of the people sitting in the chairs? What attracts you? Paul's saying, I have one offering for you. And his name is J-E-S-U-S. Paul's saying that he laid out Jesus Christ. Now can you imagine the enormous Jesus stretching out His mighty self? And Paul calling everybody in the city of Corinth to say, there's a flood coming, but if you get in this ark, if you stand on this rock, you'll be saved from the wrath to come. A person. The stable rock of God's manifestation to us in the Lord Jesus. Before we leave this point, we'd be remiss if we didn't just think a little bit about the big biblical sweep concerning the foundation and solid rock of Christ. You see, Paul knew that there's not another landing place that would suffice for the needs of God's people other than God Himself. Should I say it again? Paul knew that there's not another landing place that would suffice for the needs of God's people other than God Himself. Every man's greatest need, Tozer got it right, every man's greatest need is a greater view of God. Do you know what's not going to get you through your troubles? Bumper stickers. Do you know what will? Theology proper. Dogmatics. Who is God? Tom Schreiner said, only those congregations that are built on the foundation of Christ are true churches. Which reminds me of a question and answer that I heard uh, Paul Washer, just a, a small little setting, Paul Washer uh, answering a question and, and somebody asked him, we were, we were in an international context, and somebody asked him, uh, Brother Paul, how is the church in America doing? Have you all ever heard Paul Washer's preaching? All right, so everybody's like, right? He said, great. Awesome. The real church, she's thriving. She's so beautiful. She's marching forward with Jesus, the church militant, on a mission, making disciples to the ends of the earth, following Christ with all her heart saturated with his aroma, full of the myrrh of heaven. He goes on and on and on. And what I'm saying to you 
there's only one real church. Only the one built on Jesus is the one God looks at and says, she's mine. Paul's thinking about the prophet Isaiah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in him. Do you see how it changes from inanimate to personal? It, it, stone, rock, building, him. He who believes in him will not be disturbed. Peter, who had spent so much time with Jesus, and Jesus nicknamed him. You know his name was not Peter. What was his name? Simon. And Jesus nicknames his disciples. Hey, you guys are sons of thunder. You are Cephas. Rocky. Little rock. Little pebble. I'm going to nickname you Little Little Pebble. You're Rocky. You're Peter. And Peter heard Jesus talk about a bigger rock. I say to you that you are Peter, but on this rock, I'm going to build my church. So Peter writes to these churches scattered throughout Gentile cities, And Peter says to them, Peter a Jew, writing to the Gentiles, you come to Him as to a living stone which has been rejected by men but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for this is contained in Scripture. And then Peter quotes Isaiah. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. Now listen to this word. Is Jesus precious to you? Listen to this. This is, this is the Apostle Peter, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, thinking about his Jesus. This precious value. This precious value. Then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, this stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they're disobedient to the Word. And if you don't have a big God, you can't handle this sentence. And to this doom they were also appointed but you who should have been doomed you gentiles you people who were cut off from god's promises you didn't inherit from the fathers all these magnificent promises you're grafted in like a wild olive shoot and peter says to them but you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter's saying, what a precious stone. 
And you now are living stones being built up on top of Him. We'll get there in just a moment. Romans 9, one of the hardest passages in the whole Bible. When I got to it as a new believer, my first impulse was to rip it out. I kid you not. Because I thought, this can't be in there. Because nobody's told me about this. How does this fit? And you see, it's like the picture that I was looking at in the child's magazine, the little boy toys, Tonka trucks, and those kind of things. And I'm flipping from page after page, and you see the little model truck, the dump truck, the cement mixer, and all this stuff. And then you flip around, and you look in the bottom right-hand corner of the page, and if you pay careful attention, you'll notice that there are grown men standing in front of the tire of the dump truck. It's not a little Tonka truck. It's a gigantic piece of machinery And when I had this little view of God, Romans 9 doesn't fit. But when I see this great and glorious God, it's a little thing for Him to be sovereign. What then shall we say, Romans 9? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, the Jews, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at that law. Why? Why? Why them, not them? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I came here today to draw a line in the sand. I came here today to erect right in front of you a gigantic slab. You can't avoid. There is no backing up. You're surrounded. You're hemmed in. This is checkmate. What will you do with Jesus of Nazareth? Nevertheless, Timothy writes, Paul writes to Timothy, nevertheless, can you picture this verse? Don't hear it. See it. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. Can you imagine God Almighty taking a tool and die made in heaven, a press, and ramming it into the curing concrete of the foundation of heaven, the firm foundation of God stands having this seal. Boom! And then he picks it up. And you get to read the imprint. What does the imprint say on the foundation of God? Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, 2 Timothy 2.19, having this seal, the Lord knows those who are His. And let everyone who names the name of the Lord abstain from wickedness. There's a foundation. And you're not going to move it. You will either build your life on it or you will stumble upon it and be crushed. That's the foundation. That's the main point of the passage. But Paul goes to doing the construction project. Number two verses 12 to 15, focuses our attention on the builders and their materials. The workers are in view, the materials they use in their construction, and this is the church. The construction of the ecclesia, the called out ones, the assembly of the saints. Verse 12, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident. 
For the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. reward. But if any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. Paul's clearly uh, referring to the final day of judgment. This is when God will render to each man according to his work. Now this is where theology matters. We must have a biblical theology of justification to understand this text. He says at the very end, he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. And he's talking about the man whose stuff is burned up. Whose work is burned up. How is he not burned up? Because he's justified. Because he's counted righteous in Christ. Owing to no work of his own. If he could have worked his way to heaven, he would have built his life with the same material that's going to be burned on the day of judgment. But he can't do it. But he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. We have to have a theology of justification. You can say it this way if you want to. I just think it's led to a lot of errors in the history of the church. Once saved, always saved. I believe that. But it's more like this. Once saved, always persevering. Always increasingly pursuing the Redeemer. We don't want salvation from Him. We want Him who saves. Reminds me of an account that Dr. Stephen Olford shared with me and a small group of brothers years ago before he passed away and went to glory. And he talked about being a pastor in New York City at the time. And he went to visit a dying man in the hospital. And this man had lethargically limped through his Christian life. He and everybody else knew it. Dr. Olford knew it. A lot of people had tried to make him happy in Jesus. Discipled him, poured into him, preached to him. His dear wife had prayed for him for many years. And for whatever reason, this man... just didn't turn the corner toward rapid spiritual advance. Many thought he was a genuine believer. But for whatever reason, making his heart happy in Jesus was a lifetime project that many undertook. And like I said, he just limped along. So Olford goes to visit him in the hospital. And uh, Dr. Olford walks into the room. The wife is there. The man is on the bed. And uh, the man turns his face away. Dr. Alford stares at the wall. And after just a few minutes of niceties and pleasantries with the wife and just extending his care for them, and prior to asking if he could just pray with them before he departed from his brief visit, he, he thought to ask the man a question. And Dr. Alford said to the man whose face is still turned away, Mr. So-and-so, I feel compelled just to ask you one question. Are you afraid to die? Deathly silent. Olford said you could hear a pin drop in the room. And what seemed like an eternity, probably just a matter of a few moments, the man turns to Dr. Olford and said, with tears in his eyes, I'm not afraid. I'm ashamed. He thought himself to be a true convert. Perhaps he was. But a wasted life. Gold, silver, precious stones. 
Those are the materials that were used in the construction of Solomon's temple in 1 Chronicles 29. In this passage, we get the clear indication that those kinds of materials, refined metals, precious stones, those things are going to endure the final judgment. And with the man and with the woman walking into glory, they will have buckets full of what God accomplished, not them, but through their efforts, what God accomplished that will endure the judgment, and we will have precious things to lay at the feet of our Redeemer. Others, I believe true converts, though they themselves will be saved, their work will be burned up. The ESV Study Bible said it this way, the work that Christians do in Christ-like faith and obedience will survive and be rewarded. Work done in the power of the flesh, however, which verse 1 also speaks about, or in disobedience to Scripture, will not endure the judgment. He may be saved through fire, but his work will be burned. What the man in the hospital was saying to Dr. Olford, really a wasted life. And if any of us start to think the easy believism mantra that's been sold as a bill of goods, I believe is a ploy of Satan in the last many generations in our country. Easy believism. What I mean is, if you heard what I just said, and, and if you think 1% what I'm about to say, you don't know my God or His Gospel. If you heard me and you said, oh, you mean preacher... This guy will be saved and that guy will be saved, but this guy's going to have gold rubies and precious stones to throw at the feet of Jesus, and this man will get in, but by the skin of his teeth, I'll take that life. If you heard that as an attractive option, I joined George Whitfield, who preached to 10,000 people in the open air on the eastern seaboard of our country in the 1700s, and he threw the gospel down for two hours with biblical data all over the place, and nobody was moved. And Whitfield threw his head back and said, if you won't cry for you, Whitfield will cry for you. Jesus is not to be trifled with. And what Paul's saying to them is, motives matter. And what we do in and among Christ's church on the last day will be a day of such great rejoicing for so many. When they hear the Father with a smile breaking out over His face, which cannot be contained, saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Or what Jesus said, and he meant what he said. In Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, when you give, when you fast, just do it in secret. Because your Father who sees in secret will do what? Reward you. He's the great benefactor. He's never a beneficiary. God is not served by human hands as though He needed anything. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. We never give God anything. You're not here to give God your worship as though He needs that. We're here to receive from Him. And on the last day, all that we think we've done for Him will be put in its right light. And those things which have been done from motives of love to Jesus and desire to benefit His people. Hebrews chapter 6 God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love that you have shown toward His name in having ministered to the saints. He can't forget it. And on the last day, there will be an opportunity for Acts chapter 20 to be put on blast for all the universe to see. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, Paul said. 
it's more blessed to give than receive. If you shouldn't want the blessing, Paul should have said, forget what Jesus said about it being more blessed to give than receive. He said, no, no, no. Elders of the church, remember this. There's more reward in giving than receiving. You pour your life out for Christ and His sake. You advance the Gospel as deep in the people of God. Trust Him for the breadth. You pray and labor in the ministry of the Word and you do it for the glory of God and the joy of His people. And on the last day, I'm talking about rewards that earth cannot calculate. Gordon Fee said the reason for care in building the superstructure is related to the character of the foundation. So as we talk about the structure, not only the workers and their material, but the structure. Verses 16 and 17. The temple. We've got to realize that the reason this structure must be tended to with the greatest care and with the most precious material is because of the foundation on which it's built. How foolish would it be would it be for me, I don't know if you guys have driven around St. Jude lately, but they build buildings faster than I can drive around their campus. And there's a gigantic hole in the ground, or at least there was, from the latest building they're throwing up. And that hole in the ground was bigger than this room times three or four. I mean, deeper and wider. It was a huge hole in the ground. Now it's full and they're up to the third or fourth floor and it seems like tomorrow they'll be on the fifth or sixth and the next day they'll be on the tenth or eleventh. I mean, they're throwing the thing up. But how foolish would it be to dig a hole that big in the ground to pour it with the best and most cured concrete, concrete to get a slab as deep and wide as that, which that's not the way they did it, but let's just say, I love watching them do their thing, but that's not the way they did it, but let's say that's the slab. And then on top of it, they build a house of cards, cardboard, walls, wood paneling as the support structure. The reason for care, Gordon V, in the superstructure is related to the character of the foundation. You put Christ down as the substructure for the church, what do you suppose should be built on Him? What kind of care do you think should be taken for whatever's established on Him? He uses the word temple repeatedly in these two verses. Verse 16, you are a temple of God. 17, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. We must understand the significance of the temple in the Old Testament context to know what Paul has in mind here when he's writing in chapter 3 about the church at Corinth. You are a temple. You? I thought the temple was in Jerusalem, Paul. We've got to understand the significance of the Old Testament temple to understand this passage. Quick biblical theology of temple. I believe that the Garden of Eden, first pages of the Bible, was the first earthly temple. I believe Revelation 22 is the last temple. The one in heaven where there will be no structure, but Christ Himself is a temple. And from first to last, the temple plays prominently into the biblical narrative. I believe that Noah's ark became a floating temple. I believe that that's the place where the sacrifices and the worshipers on earth were found. Joseph's prison cell, Mordecai's dusty mat, 
so many other places we can look at where the triune God manifested His Shekinah glory among His worshiping people. The burning bush, we could go on and on. But that's not what Paul has in mind. He has in view Solomon's temple. The most elaborate building ever erected on the face of the planet, and that is not hyperbole or exaggeration. I'm talking about grown men's job being to travel a thousand miles to Lebanon with donkeys, oxen, and whatever carts they could muster up to hew down cedar trees and bring them back a thousand miles to build the interior structure of the wall of the temple, which was then overlaid by gold. You didn't even see those beams that got carried a thousand miles. When I say it's the most elaborate building that's ever built in human history, that is not an exaggeration. It housed the most important piece of furniture that has ever been constructed on planet Earth, the Ark of the Covenant. This is what Paul's thinking about. After crossing the Red Sea, Israel... In those 40 years of wilderness wandering before they came into uh, Israel crossing the Red Sea, they had the tabernacle. The pillar of fire, the pillar of cloud by night and by day to lead them. But after Joshua leads the children of God into the promised land, and David's son, Solomon, becomes the king, that's when the most elaborate structure on earth was built. And there were detailed specifications for exactly everything in this facility. The furniture itself pointed us to a Redeemer to come. The or organization of the furniture in its cross-shaped pattern is a clear foreshadowing of the cross of Christ. And in 2 Kings, Solomon stands outside the doorway of that temple before anybody else had ever set foot in the finished product, before the first sacrifice had ever been made, and he prays a prayer of dedication. And in 2 Kings, I'm sorry, sorry, 1 Kings chapter 8, Solomon prays this. I want you to picture him. I want you to picture all of Israel listening to him. And I want you to picture that building in front of him. Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, O God much less this little house which I have built for your name. That's his prayer of dedication. God doesn't fit. He's transcendently huge. The highest and most elevated, most biblically accurate thought you have ever had about God does not come close to the immensity of who He is. He's beyond you. You are a finite creature with finite limits. He's infinite and eternal. You are temporal and mortal. He alone, 1 Timothy says, possesses immortality. Now you will live forever, but you began at one point and you will never end. The only question is where you will live, not if you will live. But God is infinite in both directions, immortal this way and that way, never beginning and never ending. And it is that temple... And the restored version of it that Paul has in his mind when he says to the church at Corinth, you're the temple. You're the building where God dwells. You're the place where the transcendent King of glory makes His abode. 
The Old Testament temple is a place where the priests would enter into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant in the presence of God for the sins of the people. And this building represented the presence of God among His people. In the New Testament, this is where Zechariah, father of John the Baptist, walks into the building and comes out unable to speak until the child is born because he encountered an angel in this place. And in the New Testament, we get more theology of this temple. We find out that the temple is no longer a building, but now a person. Jesus of Nazareth, John 1.14, who the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He's the portable, flesh-wrapped dwelling place of God. The same thing that the Old Testament tabernacle was. He's the place where the sacrifice is made. He's the place where the glory of God dwells. And then we keep reading the pages of the New Testament, and we find out when He ascended on high, we don't have to go to Jerusalem anymore. It's not because there's not a temple. It's because you're the temple. There's one more temple in the Bible that we find out about between the resurrection of Jesus and His glorious return. And verse 16 says it's you. You are a temple of God and the Holy Spirit dwells in you. Verse 17, the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Now there's a crucial detail in those verses and it's impossible to see just reading it in the English like I just read it. And that is that the word you is plural. Now chapter 6 talks about the individual Christian being the temple of God. That's not what Paul's talking about in chapter 3. He's not speaking about the individual Christian. He's talking about the ecclesia, the church. And now can you hear Solomon's prayer again? God's too big for you. God's too big for you. Do you know that when we're assembled, the Holy Spirit is doing something here in this moment that you can't get on a podcast? And if you do two services or ten services exactly the same, you can't reproduce the movement of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. We are a living organism. The local church. This isn't a human institution. This is God's house. This is where He dwells. And if you had... I'll, I'll say it in a crass way because most of you know that I love you a lot. If you had half common sense, you would never, never miss the gathering of the saints barring divine hindrance like you break your leg. Jesus is talking about this in Matthew 18. It's not when you have a little Bible study in your living room that where two or three are gathered, I'm there in the midst of them. In fact, that's not what Jesus said. Where two or three are gathered in my name. You trace that thread through the New Testament, He's talking about the local church. And do you see that Paul attaches a warning to this? Verse 16, you church are God's temple. One thing the priest in the Old Testament never did, and understandably so, was as they were walking into the eastern gate of the temple, they never turned around to everybody in the city and said, hey, why don't you all come in here with me? And the reason they never did that is because they knew that to traipse uninvited into the presence of God flippantly 
by your own invitation meant certain death. Do you see verse 16? You church are God's temple. Verse 17, if any man destroys this temple, what's God going to do with that person? God will destroy him. We're not talking about slightly alter or adjust. God's not going to rough him up a little bit. God will destroy him. Is it true or not? Is it a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Instead of running away from the temple, Paul wanted this message to draw God's children near. Exactly opposite of the Old Testament. God's glory dwells in here, everybody. Why don't you come in? No, 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 thank you, said the Old Testament saint. God's glory dwells in here. Why don't you come in? Praise God, says the New Testament saint. Instead of running away from the temple, this, children, uh, this message draws God's true children near. Israel didn't run away from the tabernacle. When the pillar of cloud and fire moved, they ran toward the fire, toward the cloud. But you do remember what happened when people marched in uninvited. We're studying Leviticus in our evening discipleship sessions here. And we just crossed the pathway where Nadab and Abihu, the two sons of Aaron, were killed on the spot for marching their prideful selves into God's holy presence with strange fire in Leviticus 9 and 10. And how many times, how many times, how many times do we hear people who have never cracked open their Bible and actually read it say things like, the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament are not the same because there He used to kill people and here He didn't. Have you read Acts? Ananias and Sapphira lying to the Holy Spirit killed on the spot. Why? Because God's telling you right at the beginning of the New Covenant when the person of the Holy Spirit inhabits the praises of His people. That's what Psalm says. That's what the Spirit did. God comes near. God moves in. God makes this place His house. The church not the temple in Jerusalem, the church that was in, on that day established on Solomon's portico, a big outdoor porch. That's where the Holy Spirit showed up. And Nadab and Abihu lied to the Holy Spirit. And those of you who are aware of the account know that God did kill them on the spot and young men carried their bodies out and buried them one at a time. And what God's saying to us right at the beginning of the New Covenant, you want to come in to the temple? People may say, well, he's not killing people anymore. It's worse. It's worse. It's worse. I feel like R.C. Sproul grabbing What's wrong with you people? It's worse. People say, well, God didn't kill people anymore. He must not be that serious about it. You know what's happening? Spiritual death. You go through your whole life not caring one iota about Jesus. You don't crack your Bible open with a broken heart saying, God, would you speak to me and change me? Is there anything I believe wrong about you? Where am I in error? God forbid, where am I in heresy? How can I see your face more clearly? You go your whole life not caring about that. That's spiritual death. That's a guaranteed pathway to hell. And that's happening by the millions to people who go to church every week. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Why? Because it was the temple. Nadab and Abihu 
Did I not say by all who come near to me, they must treat me as holy? And Moses told their dad, Aaron, stop crying. God is holy. And he washed his face and went on about his business. And after the young men carried out Ananias and Sapphira's dead body, what did they do? Cancel church? They praised God. We are the temple of this age. The local churches were the outpost of the kingdom of Christ in the world. Astonishingly, we're the place where God dwells. Verse 16 says it so plainly, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Verses 18-20 to 20 tell us about the architect and then we'll look at the owner. The architect, the one who drew the blueprint, for it to be this way. Christ the foundation, the church as the dwelling place of God, living stones, you regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, clustering together in covenant communities to do one another good by seeking God's face together and bringing glory to His great name and advancing the gospel, the local church. All this was God's plan. Verse 18 says, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. I'll just draw your attention briefly in this section concerning the architect, God who drew the blueprint for the temple to be the local church built on Christ. The two quotations, one in verse 19, one in verse 20, come first from Job chapter 5, verse 14, and second in verse 20 from Psalm 94, verse 11. In Job chapter 5, it's Eliphaz who has terrible theology speaking to Job. You know how the book of Job works? Job has the second worst day in human history, second only to Christ on the cross, the true and greater Job. And after the second worst day in human history, loses all his possessions and his family, and his wife tells him to curse God and die, and Job responds, shall we accept good from the hand of God and not evil? And in all these things, Job writes, he did not sin with his lips. The author writes, Job did not sin with his lips. God's sovereignly in control over everything, good, bad, and otherwise. Well, then the book of Job just is three cycles. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. They all talk for a long time. Job responds briefly. Then Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they all speak for a little bit shorter time, and Job responds briefly. Then Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar respond for a little time, and Job responds briefly. Then you get, I believe, a Christophany, Elihu, speaking, and then God speaks. But most of Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar's message is bad theology. (laughs) Big chunks of the Bible telling lies about God. And that's what Paul quotes. But in this case, and here's the tricky part, he got it right. God is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And if you go back to the original Hebrew, catches means causes. He put you in that position. The architect who's laying the rock-solid foundation of Jesus and building this living organism called the local church, and you better be careful because God's destroying people who tamper with that temple. 
The architect behind all this is God, and He's the one, Job chapter 5, verse 14, causing people to be foolish about that. And if it wasn't crystal clear from that passage, it is unmissable from the next quotation. Psalm 94, verse 11, is quoted in verse 20, and I just put my little ribbon there because it is so worth reading. Listen to verse 8. Psalm 94, Pay heed, you senseless among the people. When will you understand, stupid ones? He who planted the ear, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? He who chastens the nations, will he not rebuke? Even he who teaches man knowledge. Now verse 11, the Lord knows the thoughts of man, that they are but a mere breath. The same word, knows, quote, is used in the book of Amos to talk about purpose and causing. God causes people to be fools about this. And I don't know in God's economy why it works this way. And I'm most astonished that my eyes have been opened to see Christ as the Redeemer and to flee to Him for refuge from the wrath to come. But I do know this. Though I don't know why, I do know God is sovereignly in control of the situation. And all the fools out there who are going to be caught in their craftiness And all those whose wise reasonings are not going to be proven to be just a little off, but God said in verse 20, useless. It's going to happen that way because God's the blueprint designer. Finally, who is He? He laid the foundation. Gold, rubies, and precious stones are the only appropriate material. I believe that's you, the living stones being beautified into the beauty of Christ, the local church, the temple, the dwelling place of God Almighty where His glory is made known and His beauty is seen and His grace is enjoyed. God's the architect who drew it all finally, verses 21-23. to 23. Who's the owner? And what else does He possess? Verse 21-23, to 23, when we see this glorious edifice, God's church, rightly built on the only solid foundation, the Lord Jesus, And we see this church adorned not in earthly opulence, but with gold, rubies, and precious stones, the living stones of the saints, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit, brought by God's grace to believe on Jesus and to turn from our sins and to embrace Christ alone as our soul's satisfaction and eternal Redeemer who ourselves are being increasingly beautified with the luster and brilliance of Christ's grace. When we see all this, what's our response? We must become like the Queen of Sheba who came to the Temple of Solomon, and when she finally saw it for herself, not what she had heard, the text tells us in Chronicles and Kings that she was breathless. She was speechless. What a magnificent structure, the likes of which the world has never seen. The Old Testament temple, though, with all of its opulence and all of its skilled craftsmanship, was nothing in comparison to the local church. Now, the church at Corinth was probably meeting in a back room at Gaius' house. How could that little cluster of people in that little insignificant and unimpressive location be compared to the Old Testament temple? It's not compared because it so far outweighs the Old Testament temple. The Shekinah glory of God was manifested among these people. 
This is the temple. And the Old Testament glory in that temple was a translucent shadow in comparison with the glory of Christ in the New Testament church. Who owns this thing? The text ends by telling us to take a step back. The Corinthians, if they needed anything, they needed a bigger perspective than their own little myopic life. And Paul calls them to take a step back and see the 30,000 foot view of this God who owns that church that temple. We've looked in detail, in some detail, about the glory of Christ's church. He Himself having broad shoulders and almighty power, being able to sustain the structure for endless eternities of all of God's people without losing one of them. No cracks, no dismantling, everything perfect to the glory of God for all time. Then, we saw these exquisite materials and the skilled craftsmen and the work crew on this project We see the edifice itself, the building, which is you, the Spirit-filled saints. Then we looked at the master planner, the architect, the blueprint designer, the one who is our great God. But the text ends by calling us to step back even further. It's a cosmic step backwards from this beautiful structure called the New Testament church. And the last passage, we catch a glimpse of the entire created order from eternity to eternity. We're no longer looking at the little temples of Christ, the outposts of heaven, the local churches in these last days in places like Corinth, which God in the Spirit inhabits with all of His gospel glory. We're not looking at that in verses 21 to 23. We're looking at God. God's heavenly view of the end of the ages And we close here, and it's so worth thinking about. So then, verse 21, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Perhaps at first, verse 21 seems like an overstatement. All things belong to you. But to make sure we understand that He means what he said, and it's impossible to overstate the case, he elaborates in verse 22. Servants of Christ, Paul, Apollos, Cephas. Spaces that Jesus has made. The world. The immaterial substance or vacancy that all men strive to grasp. Life or death. Temporal things. Here. Eternal things. Things to come. All that belongs to you. He says it again after the parenthetical For example, this, 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 and this, it all belongs to you. He restates the same phrase at the end of verse 22. All things belong to you. Now I'm tempted to use all the names of all the people of the faces I now see, but let me just take one example. Everything in the universe belongs to Katie Hinton. All of it. You possess it all. Jesus actually meant what He said when He taught that the meek will inherit the earth. The globe is going to be your playground. It will be totally renovated. New heavens, new earth. No taint of sin. No more groaning of the creation. It will be released into the glory of the children of God. All of it. All of it. All of it. It's reminiscent of the end of Romans 8 where nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, not even life or death, which Paul references in this passage, but it goes so much deeper. 
Because you see, it's not an anthropocentric text. It's not about what I own. It's not man-centered. Paul is not flipping the gospel on its head at the end of this passage to make it all about me and what I get. Paul was militantly committed to never making Jesus a means to an end. Jesus is the end. He's the telos. He's the goal. He's the sum total package of salvation, which is why we should say again, if you don't want Jesus, you don't want anything that He has to offer. He is the goal. So would you look at verse 23? You who own everything are owned. You belong to Christ. The people of Jesus who are the rightful inheritors and heirs of all things, the saints who will rule the angels and subdue the earth and reign with Christ for endless eternities are owned by Jesus. If we own it all and Jesus owns us, then what kind of massive person must He be? Paul's telling them that this grand and cosmic gospel truth is something that they need to be refreshed in time and time again Because in Corinth, they had tunnel vision. And if you just look inside these walls, let me go ahead and tell you an open secret. All you're going to find is jacked up people. And if you have tunnel vision, you're going to become a mealy-mouthed slanderer and a partisan politicker. And what you're going to do is create, even unintentionally, schisms in the bride and should I just take you up to the passage where God says it would be good for you to be warned not to destroy His church. But if we can get out of our tunnel vision and realize that there's not a person in this room who was not at one point lost in their sins, damned and headed to hell, but for the grace of God alone, we have been brought into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And when we look back, not tunnel vision, Paul, Paulus, Cephas, who's our favorite? We see one who unites us all. While the Corinthians are busy arguing about personal favorites, and in this book they're fighting over particular foods, they're entertaining gross sins. It's an X-rated sermon coming in chapter 5. They're commandeering spiritual gifts in chapters 12-14 through 14 for personal prestige. They're simultaneously owners of the universe. How can I fight with you about who owns the chair at the end of the first row? Is it mine or yours? When we realize we possess the cosmos and we're possessed by the owner of the cosmos, if you fight against them, you fight against Him. He owns each one of the saints. We belong to Him. I know what time it is. And if this last phrase were not in the Bible, I would not be able to believe it was true. Oh, depths of wonder. Infinite, incomprehensible God. The limits of our finite thinking when seeking to apprehend phrases like verse 23 about infinite deity fail us. Jesus, the possessor of all things, including you, is not in a same sense of ownership, but in a very real sense, subjected 
to the Father. Christ belongs to God. How huge is He? I could easily slip into the abyss of heresy which has been repeated throughout church history about saying terrible things concerning this phrase. I could become a heretic by saying what it is not teaching. Christ is not a subordinate deity. He is incapable of being purchased like you and I were purchased by Christ. He is of the highest possible value. Not set or appraised by man, but by God. He is Himself divine. He's not possessed in that sense by anybody. Yet, 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 He willingly put Himself in subjection to His Father's will. For the good pleasure of God the Father, for the salvation of our wretched souls. Proverbs 8.22 is of Him. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His way before His works of old. Jesus, the infinite, eternal, God-only wise, immutable, immortal, whose home address where He receives His mail is eternity, is also voluntarily submitted to the Father such that He would say on repeat during His incarnation, I do nothing on my own initiative. What do you mean, Jesus? You created the universe. Dear friends, do you see what Paul's doing? He moves from factions in the church at Corinth to what's known theologically as the ad intro relationships of God. Paul steps away from the schisms of the church at Corinth to stun them with the unified character of the triune God by showing them the character of Christ. What he's doing is this. How can you remain pridefully divided when it is this Jesus who humbly submits Himself to His Father and possesses every single one of you? Here's God's portfolio. He owns the church, which is the glorious dwelling place of Christ's Spirit. He owns the saints who happen to own everything who are themselves owned by Jesus. And Jesus, who owns the saints who own everything, has voluntarily subordinated Himself to the good pleasure of the Father. If you have ears to hear, there's a verse coming later in 1 Corinthians that I pray and pray and pray that I'll be able to faithfully unpack. When all things are subjected to Jesus... 1 Corinthians 15.28 Then the Son Himself will also be subjected to the One who subjected all things to Him so that God may be all in all. That's what Paul's saying. So I do close this way. It's an application. I pray that it's already happened. That you would marvel. That's the application. I could care less if you remember one of the points that I said or what I said about any one of the points but that you would meet God. Because if you remember a point on Tuesday or Thursday, that means almost nothing if we haven't met God. But if you meet God today and can't remember a thing on Thursday, you'll still be changed. If you meet God, marvel. Be staggered with the ridiculous profundity that every single child of God is as related to God as Jesus is. That He brings us into fellowship with God, possessor of all things, so that the Scriptures would say things like this. You, believers, you church at Corinth, you temple of the living God, you dwelling place of all of His glory in these last days. You, now listen to this, are spoken of in the New Testament so many times this way. Have you you slowed down to pay attention to it? 
Ephesians, Colossians, Romans, Corinthians, they all repeat this same kind of theme. Grace to you and peace from God our Father. Next verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whose Father is He? Ours and His. You are as related to God as Father. You're not deified. You're not the second person of the Trinity. But you're brought into a familial tie by adoption through true conversion to belong to God to whom Jesus belongs, to whom all Jesus' people belong. And you can trace it right back through 1 Corinthians 3. What Paul so desperately wants the Christians, the Corinthians to do by the time we reach the end of chapter 3 is to loosen their grip on their party lines, to loosen their grip on their petty divisions, and to grab hold again with fresh awe of the God who so loves them, owns them, and dwells among them. If we will marvel at God, be preoccupied with God, that means there's no more room for remaining, uh, retaining any other focus. He is all our gaze. Our hearts are all caught up and occupied with Him. When Jesus holds that place of rightful honor among the saints, that's when His blood-bought church becomes what she was meant to be. And I agree with Washer. That church in our land is doing great. He's all we have to offer here at Grace Church. And the good news is, He's more than enough. Christ and Him crucified. Christ risen. Christ reigning. Christ returning. We build our lives on that solid foundation. God dwells among us. Stuff like 1 Corinthians 14 starts to happen. Lost people come into the gathering. 1 Corinthians 14. Fall on their face. That's never happened here fall on their face and say, certainly, God is among you. Oh, to be that kind of dwelling place of God.